Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media, and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Rowan Robertson, founder and director of The Media Mix, who connects brands with audiences through content and entertainment. Welcome, Rowan. Thank you very much, Darren. Nice to be here. Well, and I've come to visit you in your hometown of Melbourne. Uh, We haven't seen each other for ages. I mean, last time... We, we worked together, it was uh, JWT, and I was a copywriter or creative director, and you were in media, Mindshare had just been created, I think. You were um, creating the content or the um, the ads, and I was placing them. I remember it was shit, no hit, or it might have been hit, no shit for Herald Sun. Probably got to get that <laughs> headline <laughs> around the right way. but Hit, but, no shit. But it was the Thursday supplement, I remember that. <laughs> Look, and, and uh, one of the interesting things for me is that both of us have taken quite uh, divergent paths. I went off and started uh, P3 in the, or Trendy P3, and uh, you've had a similarly interesting uh, move from the channel, what I call the channel side, to the content side. What, what actually brought that about? Look, I think it's... Uh, I was very fortunate. Back in those days, they used to talk about... Uh, Joe Walter Thompson has been that university of advertising and it was, a, and it really was a great place to work and, and there's a bit of a gag as long as your parents could afford to send you there. <laughs> but it was a great place and whilst I spent a decade in the media department, um, I was really learning about how communications evolve and, you know, the power of a double-page spread or a 90-second or a 60-second Sunday night movie TV spot versus a 30-second all of that really fascinated me. And um, as I say, after a decade, I moved into to television sales and got a perspective of how um, the media functions and how a broadcaster operates commercially, but also still having a real innate interest in content. Now, conversations I've had with the sales side of media, uh, it's interesting for me because media agencies, you know, we'll talk about professionalism, but really it's not till you get to the proprietor side, the media owner's side, that you really understand the business of media and the business of advertising. Is, is that your experience as well? Oh, absolutely. I'd come from a um, arguably a creative environment, whether it's the media department or whether it's the you know, that we were in a full-scale agency in those days, and you are looking to optimise the best result for your client. Um, a media proprietor is interested in one thing, and that is revenue and its sales and its share and its yield, and it's very much a fiscal obligation to the shareholders. So that in itself was quite a interesting um, uh, contrast from albeit the broader industry and different players within it. But a broadcaster is a, um, was a, you know, a, a very different perspective on the industry at the time for me, absolutely. Yeah. And then what, where did you go to from 10? What happened then? Um, I spent a, a, an interesting and enjoyable period in publishing. It was with a um, federal publishing company and they had something like 50-plus magazines. Every second magazine on the newsstand was one of their mastheads a huge community um, newspaper business that's 
um, generations old, and I think Australia's largest independent printer. So it in itself was a content business, and I guess it was moving me more and more down this um, interest of um, not so much um, booking the space or the time, but actually how can you populate this content from a creative perspective. And Because uh, that's quite unusual. You know, there's a lot of commercial printers that just put ink on paper, package it and distribute it, right? In some ways you would equate them to being a media distribution channel, right? Whereas to work for a company that not only had the presses but also a big investment in creating the content that actually goes onto that paper because in some ways they used to do it as a way of getting the printing business but then they realised the value was actually in the content, didn't they? Absolutely. The gentleman Michael Hannon, Hannon Print was the, the printing component of that um, broader group. Um, probably for that very reason was a, a sharp enough businessman to realise that if you're printing so many publications or newspapers, you might as well own the presses as well. Um, so that was an interesting um, business. Um, it, part of that remit was uh, product development. So um, I remember being part of a team that put together a Woolworths weekly um, food yeah. magazine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, we also had the Condonast title. So there's even a, a business card in my uh, draw somewhere that's got the word Vogue on it, which couldn't be... Uh, you are known as a fashion plate, especially around Flemington in springtime, so, you know, that, uh, that, that could be very uh, valuable. I'm not sure I did that masthead the justice it was deserved, but <laughs> we move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, was that then what inspired you to set up your own business? No, I. Um, it was getting closer, It was, but... Um, a couple of uh, friends of mine had making that leap from um, corporate life or indeed they were working for um, networks, television networks, and um, they started the business WTFN Entertainment. I've heard of it. And so at a point where we felt that there could be enough uh, on the table to feed another mouth uh, for at least six months, I took that leap of faith and joined um, that business, and that was a f- tremendous, uh, almost six years. So we started really with a couple of programs, literally that were no longer um, than um, thirteen weeks in their in their tenure. And boy, did I belt some shoe leather pa- pounding the pavement. And we created because there was no other option. This whole um, revenue model called brand funded or ad funded. Um, uh, television programs, so it was golf programs, it was travel, um, it moved into small business, it moved into health and lifestyle, um, kept coming back to travel, that was a, um, a pretty lucrative well, and we're obviously talking you know, in the infancy of, of digital, so online content really wasn't um, a threat, it was still very much a 13-week television series proposition. And you can see the, uh, the the sort of logical argument there, which is why have a 30 or 15 second spot in content when you can actually be in influencing the content that people are consuming and getting the association or even the information? You, you're spot on. That's exactly right. Um, and there wasn't a lot of education or, or awareness of that uh, in those days. So it was very much trying to... Um, to take clients or brands 
um, on, a, on a journey. It was a, it was a brave marketing manager that would actually walk away from a couple of hundred thousand dollars in the media schedule that um, was a known quantity that the agency would manage on their behalf to actually put their hand up and say, no, I actually want to invest in this content, in this television series. And there's a whole lot of um, components that that make that a result. It's the um, the program itself, it's the brand fit. So um, what was drummed into me um, at a very early um, point in, in, in this part of my career was if there's no reason for the brand to be there, then it should you're not doing the brand any justice and, right. and you're only you're only misleading the brand itself or the marketer or you're actually doing the injustice to the viewer and the audience picks up on it if something is um, is sort of jackhammered into you know it's, uh, uh, then it stands out it's like product placement how many times? Have you sort of consciously been aware of product placement? Because, you know, there's just that framing on the product. You know, they look at the watch. Oh, it's a Rolex, you know. But it's like, did we really need that shot? Well, yes, it's almost like ticking boxes. But when it gets to the point that it's interrupting the sort of engagement in the content, then it's actually working against the brand, isn't it? Absolutely. And that, and that was, a, I guess, a, a constant battle, me having the sales um, revenue expectations to keep these projects moving through the cycle, but also having that creative um, um, challenge to make sure that the viewer was always protected with the best product yeah. that could be delivered. So a great example, and I, and I, and I just mentioned we came, we came back to travel a lot, was because there's an innate relevance to the content. You go to a destination, you experience what there's on offer, and then you work with a travel provider to show how it can all come together. So that's a reasonably straightforward proposition. And as you said, this is before digital became fully integrated because, you know, we've since seen, uh, I think it was uh, Taste uh, online in the magazine, uh, they were they integrated uh, the Cole shopping basket, online shopping basket, into the recipe. So, you know... This is before that, isn't it? That's this is well before that. We're actually creating um, a strategy and how um, that brand can get immersed into this project. So the project actually becomes bigger than just uh, some integration, uh, some um, some content that can evolve that they can use. More, broad, more, more broadly, a great example, and I still think it's probably one of the very best branded um, content examples is um, Talk to the Animals. Mm-hmm. So Talk to the Animals had been a latent brand or, or television series going back to the 80s. Um, it was reinvigorated by WTFN and we had some great uh, appropriate partners in, for example, Purina Healthcare. Mm. So it made sense. But then there was a whole program that was running in parallel with what happened in the television series where on a trade level, so Dr. Chris Brown, who has now become or or did become or evolved to the Bondi vet, was actually engaged by Purina at a trade level, so helping their their staff 
on location, upskilling them with the product merits, et cetera, et cetera. But it may be just personal choice, but I was always a Katrina Warren fan. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, Chris is a <laughs> lovely guy, but uh, you know, I thought Katrina had more credibility. Well, I'm glad. Well, you would never have been disappointed because we, we, we covered people. like Katrina was very much a, a part of Talk to the Animals as well. So, um, But that comes back to finding and identifying the right brand to fit into the right content and you know, six years later, it was, you know, it was still an enduring brand. But this is not a new concept, is it, Rowan? Because, you know, soap operas, you know, and, and I know it's the sort of cliched example, but people forget that soap operas in the 20s and 30s from radio and then on to television was basically companies like Unilever Brothers or Lever Brothers actually paying to have content, radio serials and things um, uh, produced. So today we're left with the concept of the soap opera because of them uh, investing in content. Absolutely. And there is, even today in this, we, we fast forward the conversation to here and now, we're still dealing with new interpretations of old ideas. Um, you're still borrowing. So we're still borrowing, as you say, from the 30s with that, that notion of sitting around the wireless on, a, on an evening and listening to the Ford Hour or the General Motors show. I've got a great poster. Well, here's the irony. It's now called podcasting now, and you're appearing on one as we speak. With that, well, <laughs> um, that's exactly right. Um, I've got a great poster of the... Um, of the schedule that was printed in the Adelaide Advertiser for 5DN. And it, um, it, nothing much has changed. It looks like a radio schedule does much today, but it's got the brands and the programs back to back to back. Yeah. Fantastic. So did you leave, is that where, I'm, I'm trying to get to where did media, the oh, media mix come from? Let's uh, yeah, get on the treadmill. Um, so look, six years was a, a really great um foundation for me to be able to start my own business that was able to, with the advent of, and the not the advent, but the um, the rapid expansion into online content and creating brand branded um, content, um, affordable, disposable, relevant today, um, relevant this week, but perhaps um, needing to evolve and providing content that could span um, a schedule so it's ongoing. That was really the um, appetite that I saw um, bring to the marketplace. So um, we've we've created um, uh, a number of award-winning uh, television formats. We've migrated what we know about television onto the small screen or multi-device environment. So what I was saying before about borrowing old ideas and repackaging them or recreating them in for a new environment, pretty much that that's. That's what we do, to give brands an opportunity to have their own um, content experience and to also use their own channels. They sometimes don't realise, gee, we've got 100,000 or we've got, got 10,000 on our database. And most of what you do is what the industry would call longer form content. You know, we're, we're not talking about advertising per se. You know, it's not the 15s or what's the latest one, the six seconds, and someone's working on a two-second ad form format because, you know, literally the person clicks on it and the ad's over. But you're, you're actually talking about long form, which a lot of agencies struggle with, don't they? Because every agency tells me they do content. 
Look, I think they do, generally speaking, misunderstand the the discipline of advertising versus content. Um, there's a lot of pressure for a successful advertisement to achieve its aims within 30 seconds, um, which is basically to evoke sales or a response. Longer form content needs to um, sustain and engage with an audience, not just 30 seconds, but let's call it over a three month period where it's a measurable, deliverable campaign in its own right. And you're right, there's a lot of um, advertisers that tick the box and say, well, look, we're on YouTube, we've got content, um, we've ticked that box. And the agencies say, well, look, we've created a two-minute version of our ad that we were shooting, so we've taken all the behind the scenes and we've created content and we've done a great job and everyone walks away. But really, it's just an ad. And I often say to a lot of people, the best branded content is where you actually don't know what brand's involved or where the brand hasn't become pervasive into the production. People say, well, hang on. If I'm the market manager, I'm spending all this money and I don't, I don't even, and the audience... Well, but it's at a subconscious level, isn't it? The person uh, takes the positioning of the brand and the value that they bring to it at a subconscious level where it's actually much more uh, effective than consciously thinking about it. And, and the other thing that's interesting is that all of the studies on memory show that if a memory is laid down with a mo- an emotion, a powerful emotion, then people are more likely to remember it. So that you know, emotional advertising, but emotional content, is infinitely more powerful because people remember it longer. It certainly is. And... No one loves great advertising more than I do, um, and I and I really truly believe it's a craft in itself. And it's a shame that, for all sorts of reasons, we don't get the ads that we um, used to enjoy. Those big brand ads. Um, well, I'm not a smoker, right? I, I don't smoke, but there is a brand of cigarette that I remember to this day called Hamlet, because there was a whole campaign out of England, and it was laid down with a fabulous sense of humour. You know, it was all about the cigar you smoke when life's gone to shit, you know. And so that's a memory that I can't shake because it was laid down for me with a very, very powerful sense of humour, of fun, right? It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, the big opportunity with content is it's infinitely more available to create an emotion when you have time than it is trying to jackhammer. And that's why advertising, I think, gets... uh, uh, accused of relying on stereotypes because it's a shorthand way of getting into the character by delivering a stereotype that people can quickly relate Identify. to. And then I can focus on creating the emotion that will then lead to the person, you know, becoming a meme in their brain, remembering it and recalling it. That's a, that's a, a really interesting observation and I agree with it. Um, the fact that you recall an English piece of creative... Um, you only have to look back. And I think there was a lot of cross-pollination back in the 60s and the 70s of um, filmmaking and advertising and that cr- that English craft of humour and how that would um, get immersed into content or into adver- popular advertising of the time. But um, 
the point you make through uh, the challenges of creating all of that in a space of 30 seconds um, without defaulting to a stereotype is very true. And I came back and just mentioned you know, a three-month campaign. It doesn't need to be three months, but, but a series of extended pieces of content in today's landscape that gives you the opportunity or gives the brand an opportunity to create an emotional connection um, and not always does every piece need to be better than the one before. We've got a natural tendency that if episodes one and two hit the mark, well, then episode three needs to be better. It's not the way we engage with a book. Chapter four doesn't necessarily have to be superior it doesn't have to keep building. Going. So it's this light and shade mm. of how you bring the story or the, um, even if, and I use the word story loosely, not all brands are about emotion or some, some pieces of content are quite pragmatic or they're information. Um, even if we're um, putting together a, um, a content piece that is really, about information, you still need to approach that from a, a perspective of how the audience is going to engage in that content because you're going to bore the living pants off someone if it's... Well, the, 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 you're right because it's about being relevant, accessible, um, are the two key things. Emotion is important for memory. People remember things. But um, you worked on Ford back, I remember, in, in your advertising agency days. You know, the car industry creates emotion through surprise and delight. You know, the actual design of the motor vehicle, they're constantly looking for those innovations. You know, I'm sure we both can remember when you pulled down the visor and there was a mirror there, you know, vanity mirror, and then the next thing was you lift up the flap or s- slide it and a light comes on. You know, these were all surprise and delight. It wasn't that it was put there because research told them that that's what people wanted. But by understanding the audience and putting those innovations there and allowing people to discover them, because you wouldn't write a TV campaign or even a brochure that says, and now with new vanity mirrors. (laughs) But by allowing the audience to discover it and seeing that, there's an emotional connection there of you understand me, you surprised me, you've given me something that I would never have thought I wanted. And I think content works the same way as well, that you can be doing something that's quite prosaic, you know, it's quite, you know, information delivered. But if you find ways of delivering that information in a way that surprises, delights, improves accessibility and reinforces relevance, people really value value you as the provider, as the brand, for going that extra step. You've just unpacked the uh, the X factor to what I believe is great content. A brand that, and this is why when I mentioned a moment ago um, how a, some of the best branded content is, is 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 material that the brand is not obvious, or you might need to dig a little bit deeper to understand. That's why I say that because if if you can create the environment, or if you can provide the information or the relevance of content that's important to me in my purchase cycle, in my life stage, um, then I'm going to have a greater proximity to your brand. And and then this is where we start talking about, okay, great content, it's 
it's terrific. We've spent all this money. We've engaged and we've delighted. Now what? Why have we done this? Well, then that that is really the, the core component of the strategy. So it's how do we migrate that goodwill into transactions or retention or acquisition, depending on what the the marketing brief from the outset is. So it's not content for the sake of putting together some nice um, um, sequence of, of production. There's actually got to be some nuts and bolts. And what you've just hit on the head, meaning that um, creating that relevance to the audience is the absolute cornerstone of what we do. Yeah. And then delivering it in a way that creates a sense of delight or, you know, some sort of emotion. <coughs> even delights emotion. Um, one of the things that annoys me about the advertising industry is this meme that goes around that people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. You know, that, that people are correlating uh, human beings now like goldfish. You know, it's every six seconds they need to be refreshed. And yet they seem to totally ignore the fact that uh, more than ever people are streaming uh, 13 or 22 episodes of a one-hour show over a weekend in binge-watching. So how can we? How do those two things correlate? Well, as far as I'm aware, there's still seven days in the week and we haven't packed any more hours onto the, onto the clock every day. So it's recognising that fundamentally the way people are consuming media is drastically different. But that's that's a good thing because it's actually this environment um, of on-demand content um, actually makes it quite permissible for advertisers or marketers to utilise content because let's rewind um, only five years ago when I was talking about um, a lot of branded television series, that the pressure on that content to perform at four o'clock or 5.30 leading into the news on a Saturday afternoon on the broadcaster X, um, put a lot of pressure on that content investment. But if that is now, um, and as, as you know, um, technology starts to bring the cost of production down, or it should anyway, if, you're, if there's brands out there that are paying more, then they um, probably need to relook at that. But generally speaking, the cost of production is coming down. You don't always need to have, and I say to um, clients, we can tier our content. It can be tier one, two, and three. Mm. So we, we've, we cut our cloth accordingly or we make it fit for purpose. Um, but that environment where we're actually consuming content on demand when we want it actually allows us to tailor the content solution for the audience more than we ever have before. And that probably comes back to why I spent a decade in... You know, looking over the shoulders of people who are better media planners and buyers than I was, but at least um, if you understand how the content's going to be consumed before you got, commence producing it, then that's a good discipline to have in place. So having spent 15 years uh, writing and producing advertising in various agencies, one of the things I noticed is the amount of attention that brands, brand managers and marketing bring to the content of that 30 seconds. Like people agonise over, you know, 12-frame <laughs> increments. I remember one of the most ridiculous uh, meetings I ever had was client and agency and they were running this ad that we'd made and there was something being poured and uh, quite a senior creative is there going, well, at the moment it's going glop, glop, glop. 
but what you're saying is it should be more gloop, 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 you know. And I'm, sta- I'm, I'm sitting in this room thinking of all the salaries that are being paid and the amount of time over such a nuance about the sound effect. If you apply that to long-form content, and you touched on this before about getting the balance right, uh, you would absolutely kill the ability to engage the audience, wouldn't you? It's um, it's a good point you, you raise, and it, it's someone who's responsible for paying those bills only too readily appreciates um, the benefit for all for a swift decision. Um, <laughs> But I think we agonise, I, I call it majoring in minors, or um, we used to get hung up on the name for a series. And my boss, when I joined WTFN, Daryl Talbot, was very good at um, calling it when it needed to be called. You can only fill the whiteboard with so many names and then you start to... Um, you start to sort of go crazy and you just got to go with your gut and the name becomes the name. And the name's not going to make the content or the, 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 the content's not going to live or die on the name. So you put all this agony either into the name or the last five seconds or the, the audio effect of that. That's not to say there's not... You, They're you, important. You, you, they you dismiss it. Yeah, yeah. But I come back to, and this is a great, um, I guess, contrast between advertising and content you've you've got a 30 second ad we all know what they can cost to produce versus that that economic basis platform or cost structure could not exist for a 30 minute let alone a 13 by 30 or 22 minute Mm. series so doesn't mean that you've got inferior people working on all the different head counts or no, no, day it's rate. A different it's approach. A different, it's a different approach and it comes back to what you were saying before about the pressure that needs to exist within 30 seconds and the stereotyping is a default of that, whereas the benefit, I, I say to a marketer, is that you've got five minutes, six minutes, ten minutes to tell our tell mm. the journey and it's, it's funny you should, because uh, we actually occasionally get bought in by marketers because they get a proposal from a company like uh, the, the Media Mix for producing content. And uh, one client came to us and they said, we've got this proposal. Uh, it's 13 22-minute episodes in the travel and tourism. Uh, this, this is the cost. And, of course, we looked at it and we looked at it from a purely long-form production point of view, not an advertising point of view, and we said there is about a, let's call it a 30% price contingency built into this. And we went back with the client to the uh, production company that was offering it and they said, here's the thing when we presented our results. We know your client's reputation. We know their reputation for being micromanagers. We have built in, you're absolutely right, we built in a 25% gross margin for, let's call it the F-around factor for this client. Now, if they're willing to sign an agreement saying that they will not do more than one set of revisions on the rough edit and one set of revisions on the final edits then we will drop that. 
And I thought that was a brilliant way of handling this because micromanaging the content is going to be coming from the point of view of how do I make my brand more integrated into the content rather than how do I make this better for the audience? Because the production company's only view is driving the audience's engagement, which should be then the brand's benefit. But the brand had a culture and a history of micromanaging their agencies that way. So the production company just said, sure, we'll do this, but it's going to cost you 30% more. And that's very, very true. And um, by the way, the client wouldn't sign it. Yeah, they paid the money. <laughs> but, but sorry, they they, they paid, paid the thirty percent. They, they paid, paid the, the premium. premium. <laughs> um, and so they should, they, they couldn't give up control. Control. <laughs> and look, um, that's a that's that actually says to me that that production company um, were experienced that they knew their their business. Oh, yeah. Um, we've all sort of learnt the hard way. And what I would say is creating content, there is a lot of passion. Whatever that that dollar figure or that price is, um, whether it's 100 hours or 200 hours, as long as you're dealing with a, a reputable and experienced um, production provider, they're going to put their heart and soul into this production because it's a reflection on themselves as, as much as anyone else. So I certainly, and I speak for myself, you can only you can only charge a certain amount um, before it becomes one of those things that just falls off the, the marketing list. So um, I think it's a really important discipline that clients appreciate that you're not making the the approval by second by second by second that might typically exist with a TV, a, commercial. A TV commercial. It just, the economics just can't be sustained mm. through longer form content. Which At, is why you can produce longer form content for, for more economically. For what, you know, for the, like if you, if you took a 60 second ad and then said, well, I'm going to make a 90 minute film, it's not going to cost you 90 times 60 seconds. There's economies of scale, but there's also the nuance of every second counts. Now it's like every five minute counts or every three minute Break counts it. because if the flow of it doesn't keep the audience engaged, then it's going to fail as a piece of content. And that's um, where the skill of the producer knows to hit those high marks. Mm. So you need, like, like, like every good story needs to have a happy ending so you need to know how to take that audience on the journey so as you do the right thing you leave the audience wanting more if it's a series mm. um but you also do the right thing by the brand so you make sure that you you finish at a point where you've got the the, the audience has been satisfied and that you also you want them to almost want a bit more leave them wanting more and that's what builds you know it's it's the techniques that that any tv producer creating content for broadcast is going to do out of a out of a series it's it's coming back to what I said at the outset it's giving that brand the production experience or the content creation that they can have and use through their own platforms that yeah. we borrow from more broadly um, I just completed not long ago um, a production with Shannon's insurance called Shannon's end of an era. And like anything, it started off 
very um, um, detailed in terms of what we'd be delivering. It grew into a project that was bigger than Lord of the Rings. And I had to remind the client at the time, you know, we've actually exceeded the Lord of the Rings as a piece of branded content because how do you tell the history of the Australian car industry? It started in about 1880-something and it finished back in 2017. So there's there's 140-odd yeah. years of where do you finish and where do you start and there's always something more that you can add, but um, it comes back to... Um, well, it's breaking it into the pieces that are relevant. As to, you know, I mean, it is a formula in a way. Like, there is a formulas around the type of casting you'll do. There's formulas around um, the, uh, the, the, the way the flow of the content. There's f- formulas in blocking out stories, you know, and all those sorts of things. The great talent are the ones that can work with formulas in a way that the audience will never know that they're actually watching a formula. And it it does need to be templated in the crudest possible way. Well, that's the formula. That's the formula. Um, It doesn't matter what reality cooking show we're watching or, um, or any of the popular reality franchises, they all default to the same template. Now that's that's okay because that's what how the audience has learned to um, enjoy these productions. But it also, from a commercial perspective um, or production management perspective, it allows the content to be created in the way that it is for the price that it is. And um, um, so our our series we've done reality. So we've brought reality shows to, to, to a brand level. We've done observational documentary. We've done travel. Um, we've done hybrids of this, this type of format. Um, and, yeah, that's what I was saying before. It's bringing, um, it's providing new opportunity for borrowed techniques. Mm. So, Rowan, uh, look, we've run out of time. Uh, it's been a long time between uh, chats, but I have to tell you, in fact, I was just working it out. It's more than 20 years. So, uh, but fascinating. Thank you for sharing the sort of the evolution. I mean, from media to media sales to to TV broadcast content and now your own business. Um, I have got a question for you before you go. You know, there's a lot of people carry on about yeah, the, uh, the lack of transparency in uh, all of those areas, production and media. Uh, from your personal experience, which one do you think's the worst? 